Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant doctor and a psychiatrist, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Cholby. Uh, Michael Cholby has written a wonderful book called Grief, a Philosophical Guide, published by Princeton University Press. Michael Cholby is chair in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. He has written and edited many books, including Suicide with Philosophical Dimensions. He is the founder of the International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying. So, Michael, many thanks for uh, writing and publishing this wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I'm going to start about three quarters of the way into the book where you mention that they are now um, technologically available to, uh, available to us chatbots, which can replicate by learning the interactions of people we were close to but who may have died. They can replicate those interactions so they can make us feel as if we're continuing to interact with people that we are grieving for and who've died. Um, I get the feeling that part of the argument, central argument of your book about grief is that grief has something to teach us. We become better people, fuller people, if we understand and, for want of a better word, process grief correctly. So I get the feeling you will be against these chatbots. Um, what's your response to that? Well, I guess I would describe my attitude toward these kinds of technologies as ambivalent. Uh, certainly one of the things I think we do in the course of grieving is imagine the individual whose death we are grieving. So we might view these chatbots and other technologies of that sort as aids to the imagination, right? They're ways of bringing to, to mind, bringing back to our presence, bringing back to our consciousness, someone who is uh, now deceased. Uh, and so they might serve to you know, stimulate that imaginative engagement with the deceased. And though, of course, I'm not a mental health professional myself, I understand that it's, it's not uncommon um, for mental health professionals who, who try to help grieving people to engage in, for example, role playing, right, uh, where, where uh, the, the patient is, uh, you know, plays the part of the deceased individual or, or the, the counselor or therapist prov provides that role, uh, or to have uh, those who are, who are struggling with grieving, you know, write letters to the deceased or, you know, write journal entries to the deceased. So in a way, you know, we might view chatbots and these other kinds of uh, data-driven technologies as just a kind of, you know, fancy, souped-up, high-tech version of something that people have been doing all along, and, and maybe in that respect, uh, we should view them as innocuous. I think if there's a danger in this sort of uh, technology, it's that it might be tailored in such a way that uh, the dead are perhaps misrepresented, that they're presented to us uh, in the ways that, that we might want them to uh, appear, or they might um, interact, if you will, uh, in such a way that they uh, confirm what we would like to believe about the dead or about uh, ourselves. So I think there is the danger that uh, such technologies could be utilized in such a way as to forestall the serious engagement that I think is at the heart of grief uh, between the, the grieving individual and the deceased and the uh, sort of scrutinization or investigation of the relationship that the uh, grieving person ha had with the deceased. So I think that in some ways, you know, there's an upside to these chatbots, but there are some dangers lurking. So grief is extremely painful and people try their best for various very good reasons to avoid the experience of the pain. And these chatbots represent one attempt to deal with that pain. Some people might say the whole idea of religion and the afterlife and the idea of heaven is an attempt to deal with the suffering and the pain. And that's why some of these ideas are so attractive. 
um, to people. Um, seances, um, spiritualists, there's a whole gamut of things whereby people are trying to avoid the confrontation of the pain. And these chatbots are another example. Your, your argument is, I think, that, that this gamut of attempts to avoid um, or assuage the suffering, in some, in some sense, I think you're arguing, is missing the point. What's your response to that? It, that it certainly can miss the point. I think that would be my way of seeing things. I, again, I think, you know, one of the things that we're attempting to do in the course of grief is to negotiate and to some extent reestablish on new, new terms our relationships with the deceased. And if, you know, imagining them uh, can help us do that, then that's all to the good. And if, you know, these kinds of technologies allow us to maybe relate to them in a way that has a more concrete, uh, tangible uh, feel to it, then I guess I would have no objection. But I think you're right to say that it is part of my uh, sort of philosophical stance on grief that um, these kinds of technologies can stand in the way uh, of an, a kind of honest reconciliation with the deceased and perhaps with uh, a kind of honest reconciliation with the fact of their being deceased. Um, I do think it's important that our um, ways of engaging grief, whether they're, you know, through these technologies, or as you said, you know, through religion, spiritualism, whatever, do not deny the fact of death, do not deny the fact that the person is no longer um, existing, or at least existing in, in the way that they did before. Let me add that on the particular issue of, you know, the use of these digital technologies, in addition to recommending my own book, of course, I would also recommend a book by um, an Australian philosopher named Patrick Stokes, who's written extensively on the ways in which um, digital technologies might allow, in a way, sort of the continued existence of, of the personas of the dead. And he raises some of the same kinds of uh, moral reservations that I'm raising now. So another thing that happens with grief and the pain and suffering is the medicalization of grief. People classically go to their GP. They're very upset. They seem to have a constellation of symptoms, for want of a better word, or, or experiences or phenomena, which begin to look like a psychiatric disorder. They're not sleeping. Um, they're so out of their mind with grief, they can't concentrate, they can't work. Mm -hmm. This replicates many of the experiences that lead to a diagnosis of a psychiatric disorder. Now, you've got a chapter in the book that resists strongly what may be called the medicalization of grief. Mm -hmm. um, people are going up and down the country to their GP to get medication to help them sleep while they're grieving or even taking antidepressants. Um, why are you so against the medicalization of grief? Well, before... Um... I give my reasons. I want to be absolutely clear about what it is that I'm, what I'm, it is I'm for, and what it is that I'm against. So I think that the the question of whether grief should be medicalized is the question of whether we should think of grief as itself a uh, the basis for a mental illness or mental disorder. So should we think that a person is sick, if you will, with grief? Right, that grief is the the underlying basis of their illness. And so what I am resisting in the book is the idea that we should think that grief is or could be uh, a condition in its own right that merits medical attention. What I think can merit medical attention, and here I want to say that I think people should seek medical attention um, if this is in fact how their how they're grieving unfolds, is all the things that you just said. If you know the grieving leads to, to sleeplessness, to anxiety, to you know an inability to uh, you know sort of thrive in day-to-day -day life, if it leads to you know disturbing thoughts, that sort of thing, uh, then of course I would advocate for uh, people seeking uh, the assistance of, of trained professionals. 
But I think it's important to understand that, as I see it, the issue about the medicalization of grief is not whether people should seek assistance in those cases, but what it is that they're seeking assistance for. I think they're seeking assistance for you know, sleeplessness or anxiety or whatever the, uh, uh, the sort of, as you put it, symptom might be, but I don't think they're a symptom of a disease. I think we should view grief as almost universally a kind of healthy response, right? It's our psyche's uh, healthy response to the losses that, uh, uh, are, are, are that cause grief, right? The losses that cause grief. So in, in opposing the medicalization of grief, I'm not opposing the medical treatment of um, uh, conditions that might arise from grief. I'm opposing us thinking of grief as the condition to be treated. Um, and I should say that, you know, if we take kind of a long view on the phenomenon of grief, it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, a century ago, two centuries ago, a millennium ago, you know, certainly people have struggled with grief, you know, I suppose throughout the history of, of the human species, but they wouldn't have thought to go to a medical professional, right? It wasn't thought of as, as a medical problem, first and foremost. And I think I'd like to revive a bit of, of interest um, in that thought, right? That sometimes the problems that grief creates for us are not problems of a medical nature, they're problems of a human nature, right? Problems that arise from the fact that we are um, mortal beings that are interdependent, right? We account on other people and we stand in relations to other people. And so grief is, is a kind of inevitable byproduct of um, central facts about human nature. So again, I don't want to discourage people from seeking medical attention when grief gives rise to medically significant problems, but I want to resist sort of at a conceptual level the idea that grief is the illness. But some people would argue with what you're saying and saying that, that the symptoms you described are suffering they're experiencing suffering and mm -hmm. they're going for treatment of the suffering yeah but i thought that your thesis is the suffering in the case of grief is meaningful suffering and if we understand the meaning behind the suffering i mean one of your central theses is the yeah. reason why it's so painful and involves suffering is something to do with the renegotiation of our personal identity because there's only mm -hmm. certain people that we're very close to We'll get into that argument in a minute. But anyway, yeah. the point I'm trying to make is I think you're arguing there is suffering, but it's meaningful suffering, and you should endure that suffering. You, you, I think you're against meaningless suffering, but I think you believe that there's meaningful suffering in, in experiencing grief, and we should be wary of the attempts to do away with suffering, do away with suffering just because it's suffering. I may, but I may have read you wrong. No, I think that that is a that is an equitable reading of my position. I, I hope I don't want to I certainly don't want to come out in favor of meaningless suffering. That's a difficult position to defend, I suppose. But uh, but um, uh, yes, I think that there there that meaningfulness can be found in the sufferings of grief. I think it's important to um, emphasize that. On my view, I think that we locate or develop the meaningfulness of uh, the suffering of find and grief. It's not inevitable that it's meaningful. It could be meaningless if, if we don't uh, engage with our grieving um, in the right sorts of ways or in the best sorts of ways. So whether or not the, the suffering in grief uh, is meaningful is I think a contingent fact about, about grieving. Uh, it will depend upon how we, we engage with that grief, how we process it. Um, but I do also think, and I'm picking up on, on a different thread I think in the, in the question you asked, that we should um, sometimes ask questions about whether suffering is, you know, a sort of unmitigated bad. Uh, I think that if one believes that uh, meaningfulness in life is as important a dimension of human existence as what we might call more ordinarily happiness, then we might ask whether there might be some suffering that 
maybe we shouldn't endure it exactly, but we also shouldn't be um, ready sort of at a moment's notice or, or unthinkingly prepared to try to uh, expunge that suffering from our lives. Uh, I don't think we want, for example, um, to you know, uh, subject ourselves to very powerful you know, psychotropic medications that expunge you know, the sadness, the anguish, uh, the heartache that people engage with in grief. It seems to have um, some value to us in some way. Um, so I think we should be hesitant about that. But again, I don't want to suggest that you know, it's never the case that, that people's grieving can become you know, clinically significant. But I do want to suggest that we should have a more um, hesitant attitude about um, thinking of it um, as a primarily medical phenomenon. So one of the reasons why grief is so painful and throws us into crisis, it poses the question, how do I lead my life now, given someone that was so important to me has gone? And my way of understanding myself or my way of understanding what it is to live the good life seems to be challenged fundamentally when we are grieving for someone close to us. And you say in the book that one of the central questions of philosophy is how to lead a life, how to lead a good life, or what is a good life? So then we come to the conundrum, why has philosophy neglected grief? Because that's one of the first opening arguments in the book, that mysteriously philosophy has neglected grief. Now, one of the answers you come up with is philosophers have seen grief as a bit of a mistake. If you're grieving, you haven't quite really grasped some of the fundamentals of what life's about. So I wonder if you could tackle that point. Why is philosophy neglected grief if it has done? And yeah. do is it the case that philosophers have seen grief as, a, as basically a revelation that you're making some kind of error in your understanding yeah. of the world and life? Well, I think there are probably sort of several streams that come together um, to explain why philosophers have not said all that much about grief historically. Uh, I think one of them, and this is not a positive reflection on philosophy, I should say, is that philosophy um, has for, for quite a long time, both in what we would think of as the West, but also in other parts of the world, been conducted um, for the most part by, by men. And uh, grief was viewed by some philosophers as a, as a kind of feminine uh, condition, right? A kind of girlish, womanish, uh, sort of state to be in, and you know, for that reason, perhaps not deserving of uh, a philosopher's attention. Uh, I don't accept that. <laughs> I think it's quite worthy of a philosopher's attention. But I also think that another reason that philosophers have neglected grief is that if you accept a certain uh, picture, right, of what the well-lived human life is, then grief represents a sort of failure, right, to have lived well. So suppose you hold the view, which was relatively common, you know, in, in ancient Mediterranean philosophy and Greek and Roman philosophy, say, that uh, the well-lived human life is the virtuous human life, and the virtuous human life is self-sufficient. That is to say, that the virtuous person sort of lacks for nothing and is not um, uh, pinning his well-being or hinging his well-being on facts outside of himself. Okay. Well, if that's your view about what a well-lived human life is, then you are likely to think that grief represents a failure because what it seems to suggest is that you are uh, lamenting the loss of something that you should not have um, invested in in the first place, namely the existence of other people. You didn't in fact achieve this kind of invulnerability that is emblematic of a self-sufficient and virtuous life. And so the fact that you're grieving means that, that you've fallen short. Uh, I think what we see in many of the ancient philosophers is um, maybe not an outright hostility to grief, 
but certainly a, a point of view on grief that says, well, you know, if we have to do it, okay, but we certainly shouldn't, um, we certainly should not indulge in it. We certainly should try to, to tamp it down. And it's certainly not a source of, of pride or something that we should think of as, as representing the best in us. In fact, it represents to some extent the worst in us. And that's definitely a, a set of views that I, um, that I need to reject. So um, you mentioned the famous um, death scene. Socrates is is dying. He has to drink the hemlock. Um, mm -hmm. The the Athenians have democratically voted uh, in the jury to do away with him, which is one of the reasons why. And you know much more about this than I do. So I'm nervous of saying all this stuff. Plato is not a big fan of democracy, <laughs> um, um, and uh, his friends are weeping in the prison cell, having created the conditions where Socrates could escape, but Socrates mounts an argument why he's not going to escape and accept the death sentence. And Socrates gets a bit annoyed with the grieving of his friends mm -hmm. and, and mounts an argument that they're being a bit silly to be upset. It, there's several arguments, I thought. I thought the one that you left out was the one where he says, why are you getting so upset? At long last, I'm going to have decent conversations <laughs> with properly intelligent people, the gods. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't he yeah. say something like that? Which he does, a yeah. slap he... in the face to the friends. Yeah. Socrates is not a nice dying companion right he's actually kind of a jerk right <laughs> to, to to those who are assembled who are who are uh i guess we would now say engaged in anticipatory grief um yes. yeah he's 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 a little bit uh, abrasive <laughs> yes but isn't this an example of of the philosophical objection to grief where even the great socrates says what, yeah. what are you guys getting upset about yeah so i mean i think there are a few strains of 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 thought going on in that famous scene one of them is certainly that um you know, he, he has something to look forward to, right? Uh, of course, the, the, the Socratic, Platonic uh, philosophical, you know, outlook, the philosophical worldview was, you know, that we will survive death, that we have immortal souls, and that um, these immortal souls survive the death of the body, and that this amounts to a kind of liberation of, of the soul from the body, and should, to that extent, be, be welcomed rather than, um, than feared or lamented. Uh, that's a pretty common view, um, you know, I guess, particularly throughout the history of ancient philosophy. So, you know, when Socrates has these, uh, these followers and friends of his assembled uh, just prior to his, to his self-imposed execution, he sort of chastises them for, uh, you know, for grieving on the supposition that, you know, they're only grieving because they think something bad is about to happen to Socrates, right? That he's about to undergo some sort of, some sort of harm or some sort of evil. And since he doesn't think that he's about to undergo some sort of harm or some sort of evil, he, he thinks that they are, uh, you know, sort of grieving for no reason. Now, of course, that, I think, you know, should strike us as, as a kind of an odd, <laughs> perplexing picture of what grief is all about. I suspect that those who were mourning Socrates were not mourning for Socrates in the sense that they were uh, ex expecting that, you know, Socrates was about to undergo some, some great uh, suffering or had a had a bad fate to look forward to, but they were grieving, you know, for what they lost, right? That they were losing their their friend, their their mentor, their teacher, their companion. So I I, I think that Socrates sort of misses the the significance of grieving as um, a response to a kind of alteration in our relationship with with other people. He he doesn't really sort of appreciate the the interpersonal dimensions of grief. And I think it's a lovely example, because I think if the great Socrates gets it wrong about grief, then it does yeah. suggest that philosophers are struggling here a bit, though we have to be very careful about uh, suggesting the great Socrates might have got something wrong. Anyway, uh -huh. the other good example in the book was C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. who again is a towering figure in many different areas, literature and perhaps philosophy. But he is completely um, um, uh, sledgehammered 
by uh, his grief. Tell us a bit about that story and what you think it tells us. Well, uh, this is accounted uh, or in uh, um, a book that was published under the title A Grief Observed. It's got a very interesting backstory. Uh, this is uh, Lewis's uh, diaries or journals that he composed in the wake of the, the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. This happened in the early 1960s. And uh, these are very interesting reflections, I think, on the experience of grief and uh, interesting, though I would say somewhat less interesting, uh, reflections on uh, sort of the, the point of view of grief uh, or, or grief from the point of view of like a theological mindset. Uh, but the interesting backstory is that uh, he considered publishing these, and they were in fact published while he was alive, but not under Lewis's own name. And uh, I'm not, you know, sure that there's any sort of um, uh, definite, definitive story of why it is that they were published under those circumstances. My own sort of speculation is that the Lewis that you encounter in A Grief Observed was very different from the Lewis that you encountered in uh, you know, his popular writings on Christianity and, you know, his various, um, you know, novels and, and, and works for children. Uh, the Lewis of the early stretches of A Grief Observed is really falling apart. I mean, it's very uh, harrowing, very touching, I think, the ways in which uh, he describes his own grief as uh, a kind of profound disorientation in the world, right? He seems just not to know how to relate to himself or how to relate to you know, otherwise familiar places, his own, you know, his own home, uh, the pub where he used to go with his wife, uh, you know, being in places with his friends and colleagues, the whole world just seems to be uh, strange and foreign and alien to him. And what I think is so striking is, you know, of course, Lewis was a, was a very formidable intellect and not somebody who was um, a stranger to adversity. He'd certainly had some difficult things in his life prior to the death of his wife. But he really did seem to be caught completely unprepared, completely flat-footed, I think, for, for grieving. And the sort of complex, you know, panoply of emotions that he was undergoing, and just sort of the sense of his world being, you know, uh, you know tossed into the air like a house of cards. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting document philosophically, because here you have someone with, you know, a very formidable uh, philosophical mind, who you know, did seem to have been caught unprepared for all of this. And we see him struggling in a firsthand way. And it's, it's very different, right, from that sort of Socratic attitude, you know, that, you know, what, what, what's the big deal? You know, uh, uh, those who die go to a better place. It, it's quite, a, you know, a distance from that Socratic point of view, for sure. Yes, and just for people listening who may not quite know who C.S. Lewis is, he had been appointed yeah. as the first holder of a newly established chair in medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. He had done many popular BBC radio broadcasts in the early 40s, but he's perhaps most famous for his wildly popular seven-part series of novels, The Chronicles of Narnia, which I certainly read as a child, and um, mm. it, it kind of, they, they were addictive. They kind of got me into reading. But perhaps the more, most famous book of his that adults would have read or be aware of is The Screwtape Letters. Mm -hmm. um, um, so th th these are good examples of how even very, very bright people struggle uh, with grief. And um, I want to go on to another example um, where uh, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but I'm going to ask for your help here. The mm. writings of the Chinese Taoist philosopher, is it Zung, Zung Gazi? Have I got that right? Zhuangzi, Zhuangzi, yeah. Zhuangzi, okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a story where Zhuangzi um, 
Master Hui, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, arrives mm. to comfort Zhuangzi upon the death of his wife. Hui unexpectedly finds Zhuangzi banging on a basin and singing rather than wailing or weeping. I just want to read this bit out because it's so beautiful. Master Hui said, you lived with her. She raised your children and grew old now that she's dead. It is enough that you do not weep for her, but banging on a drum and singing? Is this not extreme? Master Zhui, Zhang, Zhuang, Zhui, is that right? Said... Yeah. It's not so when she first died. How indeed could I not have been melancholy? But I considered that in the beginning, she was without life. Not only was she without life, but she was originally without form. Not only was she without form, but she was originally without key. I think that's the way you pronounce yeah. it. The key changed and there was form. The form changed and there was life. And now there's another change and there is death. This is the same as the progression of the four seasons, spring, autumn, summer, winter. Moreover, she sleeps now reclining in a giant chamber. If I were to have accompanied her weeping and wailing, I would have considered myself ignorant of destiny. So I stopped. This is beautiful. And But what's interesting is the Taoist philosophy, the Zen Buddhist philosophy, yeah, the Stoics attempt to reconcile ourselves to grief. You are saying they're still kind of missing the point, which is that grief is about something to do with our relationship with ourselves as mm -hmm. mediated with our relationship with extremely significant people. And yeah. all these different philosophies are missing this point. Could you take up that point? I think that captures the spirit of my thinking well. I think that the, the Guangxi tale, you know, I think that there's something laudable, admirable about being able to arrive at this mindset where he says, you know, I've come to appreciate that uh, my beloved uh, at one time did not exist, had, you know, had no form and then came to have form and now she no longer does. And, you know, there's something, as you say, quite beautiful about the idea that uh, we should hope in the end to be able to uh, rest content, right, with the fact that those that we care about are like us mortal. And so it is inevitable that, that they will die. Of course, that doesn't mean they will die before we do. <laughs> so, you know, there's the chance that uh, we won't necessarily grieve them. But I do think that that's a place that uh, we want to come to, if you will, sort of at the end of grief, right? Um, and sort of en route to that place, I do think that we do and should want to engage with the ways in which our relationships are transformed with those that matter to us when those that matter to us die. And just as with Socrates, kind of overlooking the interpersonal dimensions of, of grieving, and maybe Lewis sort of perhaps caught a bit off guard by the interpersonal uh, intensity uh, of grieving. I think you see in, in Guangxi, uh, a philosopher that, you know, uh, bless him, you know, he manages to come to a position where he is, is sort of at peace with all of this, but seemingly uh, neglects, right, what I think of as the sort of the most uh, momentous and, and most vivid aspect of grieving, which is how we try to figure out how to live, right, uh, in the light of the death of someone who mattered to us and in whom we in some sense invested ourselves, right? Our life stories have uh, come to revolve or had come to revolve around this deceased person and now they're no longer with us. And I think that the, the story that we tell about ourselves and about our lives uh, needs to change accordingly. So I certainly, you know, applaud and and I suppose welcome, right, the, the, the state of mind that you see in that in that little uh, parable. Um, but I think that that's, you know, uh, is something that we want to, to come to sort of at the conclusion of grief, rather than sort of uh, hope that it would be uh, where we would start with our grieving. I think we need to start with our grieving um, by engaging with with the relationship with the deceased and how that relationship 
needs to change in light of their deaths. But you seem to be something fundamental, saying something fundamentally surprising, which is really grief is about our sense of self, our sense of self-identity. And it's having to renegotiate that in the light of the deep loss. That's, that in a way is a central problem of grief. And unless we realize that we're going to have, we could do it unconsciously or, or bumble through it or get to the right place inadvertently. But if but you're seeing, saying that what would assist us is to understand that, that there's a sense in which grief is not egocentric in a selfish sense of the word, but the key work is re a, a re-understanding of ourselves. So it's mm -hmm. almost like an opportunity to deeper self-knowledge. That's exactly right. Uh, obviously, grief responds to an event or, or kind of event that is distressing, right? I certainly don't want to uh, uh, engage in kind of silver liningism saying, you know, grief is a kind of opportunity for something good. And so we shouldn't, you know, um, at all be uh, dismayed by the fact that um, other individuals, people that matter to us, die. Indeed, I think it's one of the most um, remarkable facts about grief that, you know, human beings learn early in life that they themselves are mortal, that other creatures are mortal, uh, that death is inevitable for all of us. And yet at the same time, despite this knowledge, when other people die, we grieve, you know, you might sort of think, well, didn't you realize that they were going to die all along? Of course, we did realize that, but we're also, you know, practical beings that live day to day. And we invest uh, our choices, actions, ways of life in other people. They uh, form sort of the house that we live in, practically speaking. And when um, when one of those people uh, uh, dies, you know, then we can't quite live in that house in the same way. We have to sort of reconstruct it. And in do so doing, I think we're reconstructing ourselves and coming to know our, ourselves better. I think we come to understand uh, or can come to understand better what it is that we valued in our relationship with the deceased. And we can decide how how to um, incorporate uh, those values, if at all, into our future practical identity, into our future sense of self. So I think it's a kind of opportunity for self-insight, for self-understanding. Uh, this isn't to say that you know, we should be, uh, again, uh, jumping for joy uh, with the fact that we grieve insofar as, of course, it's a response to something that's deeply distressing. But I think that there is, is the worry that we will mistake sort of effect for cause here and, um, you know, condemn the effect when we should be uh, condemning the cause, right? The effect, grief, right, uh, of, of our having these kinds of relationships with others, with mortal others, is a good thing, right? It's our tool for figuring out how to continue in the world uh, on terms that we can endorse and recognize. So I think grief is, is a useful, valuable tool to deal with something that is you know, understandably uh, unsettling or distressing about human life. So your analysis, you defend uh, throughout the book by showing how your analysis explains certain things. I don't, I don't want to pick on all the different things that are inexplicable unless we go with your analysis, but I want to pick on a few things, and maybe some of these are unfair targets. But one one you pick on is why are Christians, I don't want to be unfair to Christians, but people who believe in the afterlife, why are they quite so upset when someone they're close to has died? Because they believe the person continues in some form and they're going to meet them again at some point later on. So why be quite so upset? So one of the arguments you're making is that grief, your view of grief, which is that it's about a loss in our sense of self, explains that. I'm going to be slightly um, tendentious and say that other existentialists like Kierkegaard would have said the reason why Christians are upset is they don't really believe it. They don't really believe <laughs> the, in the afterlife. That, that his right. argument has been that well, actually, if you expect, it, it, and I, I really don't want to be unfair to Christians. You could mount this argument about most religions. 
what what's really happening here is they if they really believed it they wouldn't behave as they do and that's that explains the grief of christians so i know it's a slightly unfair <laughs> curveball yeah. to throw at you but what are your yeah. thoughts well so you know i'm, I'm a philosopher I, I suppose you could view philosophers as sort of theoreticians of of the human condition and of course we want our theories to explain as much as possible right and it does seem to me that it would be a mark against a, a theory, philosophical or otherwise, if it could only explain some instances of grieving and not others. And I think there are uh, ways in which some philosophers have talked about grief and, and some non-philosophers have talked about grief that do seem to assume that uh, grief is a response to the non-existence of the deceased, right? On the supposition that uh, death is the cessation of our existence. But of course, many people, indeed, I think the majority of people uh, living now and that have lived throughout you know, the history of, of, of our species have believed in some sense that death is not our end, right? That uh, we will survive it, we will perhaps be resurrected or we have immortal souls or you know, some sort of uh, narrative along those lines. And uh, if an account of, of grieving doesn't make sense of how those people could be genuinely grieving, how their grief could be you know, bona fide, 100% real grief, then I think that's a mark against the theory. So I, I think of uh, one of the advantages of my particular view is that it does make sense of uh, how it is possible to grieve when one nevertheless believes that the person uh, whose death is responsible for your grief continues to exist in the afterlife, say. Because, you know, you will have to alter your relationship with that person. They don't exist in the same way. You can't you know, plan your life with them. You can't, uh, you know, do many of the things that you did with that person before. They can't play the same part in your life that they did before. So I think that's a, that's a sort of fruitful and welcome consequence of my view. Now, you're suggesting that um, perhaps people don't really believe this. And I, you know, I guess I, I would sort of leave that question to people who study sort of the psychology of, of religious belief or religious faith. Um, I think it's possible for uh, people to grieve, uh, even if maybe they don't exactly believe in the afterlife or they're not convinced of it, they might sort of have faith in it. And so long as that, that, um, that conviction is strong enough, then I think we can make sense of their grieving experiences uh, in the terms that I suggest. But again, I think it'd be a real uh, shortcoming, right, of any account of grief it, if it just sort of left out kind of by, by definitional fiat that people grieve uh, the deaths of, of individuals that by their own belief systems continue to exist in some way. So um, we're running out of time a little bit. I wanna put throw one final question at you, but just to remind people who are listening that we're discussing um, a book by Michael Cholby, Grief, a Philosophical Guide, uh, published by Princeton University Press. So, I mean, I agree ultimately with your fundamental thesis that grief is an opportunity for deeper self-knowledge, but in the spirit of philosophy, which is to try and find a weakness or an error in your argument, I would say one of the problems is how do we know? I think you embark on a journey knowledge is a journey and grief is an opportunity to embark on another kind of journey, which is to better understand myself, understand what it is, the role this other person played in my life, how I have to renegotiate my sense of self. The problem is how do we know that we're on the right journey? How do we know uh, that we've got the right knowledge? This is the central problem with psychiatry and psychology with the introspectionist schools, the Freudian schools, which, about, which hinge so much on insight. How do you know that you've developed insight? It's a, it's a, an infinite recurring problem. That's why the behaviorist position is so much more um, simple, which is 
do the behaviors. There's no argument about whether you perform the behavior of going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that's why, you know, um, people, the behaviorists, when they asked to define mental health, they would say things like, you turn up at work, <laughs> you're able to pay for your meals, um, you raise children. They're very much, what's what do we observe? Because we can't argue about what we observe. It's publicly verifiable. The problem with the idea that mental health and you've achieved the thing is about something that goes on inside you is it's very much up for grabs, whether the thing that's inside you, what has really happened inside you? So I, I put that down as a challenge to you. I don't know whether that's an intelligent mm -hmm. challenge to your position or or an incorrect challenge. Well, I, I appreciate the challenge. I think it's a, it's a very fine question. I think that an important move here is to point out that the condition that I think that we should be striving for uh, in grief is, as you and I have been discussing, the sort of self-insight, self-understanding, self-knowledge. But I really don't take a stance in the book on the ways in which we might acquire this sort of self-knowledge. So uh, no doubt uh, introspection, as you were mentioning a moment ago, could be one of the ways that we acquire this self-knowledge. But I actually want to be uh, quite ecumenical, pr quite tolerant of any sort of pathway that might lead us to this kind of self-knowledge. So, you know, it might be that for some grieving individuals, uh, they get it through, you know, therapeutic means, through, through mental health professionals, you know, providing them counseling, therapy, whatever. Uh, it could be that others get it through, uh, you know, the participation in the rituals that we associate with mourning, you know, um, you know, burial, interment, uh, funerals, those sorts of things, um, the performance of, of those kinds of rituals. For others, it might be, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, returning into the natural world to, you know, sort of encounter uh, themselves in, in, a, in, you know, what they see in nature. So I want to take uh, a very broad-minded stance on how we acquire this self-knowledge, not uh, supposing that introspection is the exclusive source of, of this self-knowledge. I do think it will involve some measure of reflection, right, or introspection, but I don't think that that's the royal road to the kind of self-knowledge that I think we should we should hope to to attain via grief. However, we get there is is fine by me. Well, Michael Cholby, thank you very much indeed. Just to reiterate, we've been talking to Michael Cholby, a professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, and he's published through Princeton University Press a recent book entitled Grief: A Philosophical Guide. Uh, Michael Cholby, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. <laughs>